I fought a good fight. I finished my football race. And after 18 years, it's time. Basketball players, we're really supposed to shut up and dribble, but I'm glad, I'm glad we do a little bit more than that. Eventually, every ball would go flat. But that doesn't mean that your life will flatline. What will you do when the game is over? Hello, all, and welcome to episode 43 of Bro Battle's Endless Hustle. I am Matt Cohan, and as always, I am joined by Arthur Cade. This episode, I was giddy about. I'm giddy about most of them, but this episode may be the giddiest I've been all year because we have someone I never thought we'd get. We have someone literally out of this world, don't we, already? Yeah, no, Matt, we've been doing a lot of double guest episodes the last few weeks. This man deserved his own episode. We talked about it as a unit and we're like, hmm, who do we pair Neil deGrasse Tyson with? And then we just decided Neil gets his own episode. He was that freaking good. One of the most brilliant men on the planet. We covered as much as you could possibly cover in an hour with him. And I think, Matt, if there was an emoji to describe this interview, it's the one with the head blown because that's what Neil did. Yeah, I mean, there was just boundless inquiry. Like he'd start off answering our question and then he'd just turn and open other doors and go down them. So it's like, like I said at the beginning of this interview, I said, just give Jordan the ball and like, you know, Bill Wennington and Tony Kukoc, we can just stand in the corner and just watch Picasso paint. And that's exactly what he did. And he's got a very busy couple months ahead because two great new projects. He's got a new book, Cosmic Queries which he's pretty much answering all the questions we want to know about the universe as only Neil deGrasse Tyson can answer it. And then he's also got his Nat Geo show, Cosmos Possible Worlds. Whenever he's doing that show, everybody loves watching it. It's been a huge hit for him. So pretty busy couple months ahead for Mr. Neil deGrasse Tyson. This is a good one and buckle up because we have Neil deGrasse Tyson. Enjoy. This is an otherworldly day on the Endless Hustle as we welcome on famed astrophysicist, host of Cosmos Possible Worlds on National Geographic, and author of his most recent book, Cosmic Queries, Mr. Neil deGrasse Tyson. Hello, Neil. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you. No Thank problem. You. I love talking about the universe, so I'm ready for this. That's one thing we know about you. And it's funny because I, when my friends are all fanboys of you, so like yesterday I texted them and I said, Hey, I'm having Neil on. I'm a little nervous. I don't know which way to push the conversation. And my friend texts me back and he goes, The less you talk, the better. Just give <laughs> Jordan the ball. Give Jordan the ball. Like I'm Bill Wennington in the corner. Just let him do what he does. So <laughs> we, I, we get a few questions for you. I'm sure Arthur does as well, but. I guess I'll kick it off here. I know you're, you credit your curiosity kind of to the cultural expansiveness of New York growing up. A, are you in New York now or are you part of the great COVID exodus? So um, I spend about, uh, it depends on which month it was. Over the summer, it was a little more. We have a, a place out in the country and we spend about two thirds of our time there, one third back in the city. Uh, but that exodus wasn't to leave the city specifically. I just really enjoy out in the country. My wife is from Alaska. She was raised in Alaska. So that it's always attracted us. It had nothing to do with what the rates were in the city versus wherever else we were going. What happened was things closed down. In, you know, I, I, the, my office, nobody was at my office. And plus, of course, I'm computer fluent and literate. 
So I, one of the fortunate few who can do my work anywhere, especially when it comes to writing books, that book was completed. The Cosmic Queries was completed during COVID, during the COVID shutdowns. And so I, um, yeah, it was, so it was it primarily just because I really like it out in the woods, uh, even though I'm a native New Yorker and I love the city. So no, it wasn't to escape anything. Let's get into the good stuff, Neil. I saw a great story that when you were short on cash in graduate school, you contemplated becoming an exotic dancer. Is that real? Well, yeah. So, um, it, but it was simpler than that. I mean, it makes it sound like I'm analyzing life options. And uh, while in graduate school, I was also at three different times a member, no, two different times, uh, a member of two different dance companies because I used to I used to dance. These are performing dance companies, college troops. It's not the Bolshoi, right? But uh, in graduate school, you don't you're not paid much. And I was a teaching assistant, so there's some compensation for that. I think I was getting $1,000 a year, something like that. It was just barely enough. And some of my fellow dancers, male dancers, says, you know, we make money, extra money on the side. Uh, why don't you come down and check it out? And once they heard that I was, like, wondering how to get extra money. And so I go down there, and so it's, it's, a, it's, so it's a male, you know, review dance club. And, you know, women are there, you know putting money in the, you know, so it's what you think it would be, right? That's what it was. And uh, they came out in one of the dances with sort of an asbestos-lined jockstrap that had been ignited after being soaked in lighter fluid. And they came out dancing to the song, Jerry Lee Lewis's song, Great Balls of Fire. And I thought to myself, uh, I'm embarrassed that it took that image for me to say, you know, I think I should tutor math. <laughs> well, that should have been my first thought, really, really, okay? Because of course I know math, right? I'm, I'm getting a PhD in astrophysics. And, and so then on, I, I said, no, no, I will not do this. Uh, I will tutor math. And so it's slightly, the money comes in at a lower rate, but it's less, <laughs> um, but it's still extra money. And like I said, I, uh, I'm, I don't know why it required that view to just snap me back into uh, reality. I've seen the uh, photo of you, college wrestling photo. You were yoked, you know, you had the body for it. So, you know. Oh yeah, no, it wasn't even just the, the sort of the, the, the musculature. There was the, uh, what I really valued uh, back then and today in whatever way my 40 years older body than it was in that photo, um, uh, I valued the combination of strength agility, both of which you need in wrestling, but also grace and sort of elegance. And that's what I got from dancing. And so that sort of total combination, uh, and I still value it to this day. I mean, when, when I, <laughs> I haven't said this lately, because maybe I've just got a little clunkier and clumsier in my gait, but people generally underestimate my weight, my actual weight, when they see me. And, uh, and even the, the, the expert guy at the, at the carnival, right, they'll generally underestimate, unless he starts feeling me up more, you know, in my midsection. They just look at me. And I credit that to how I carry my weight. And, you know, sometimes you get a big guy and they're just kind of lumbering along and they, and they, you know, almost waddling from foot to foot. And you kind of just expect that. 
and I never had the waddle, okay? I never had this sort of the, the jolly belly jiggle. Uh, even though I got a, I got a middle-aged man belly right now. To totally have one. So if your strength, agility, and grace carries you, you I think you leave a different kind of footprint that people then uh, analyze. So uh, right now I'm probably 260 pounds. And I think that's high by most measures. How tall are you? 6'2". Yeah, I want to be 240. Or, I mean, sorry, I want to, <laughs> I want to be 220 or less. <laughs> but I, that, I like eating a lot, and my wife and I are foodies, and we like wine. So it's just really hard to say, let me forego the tastiest food as much as I want with the ice cream and the milkshakes and the pizzas and the wine and, the, and so that I can weigh less. You know, I, it's, that's a hard... That's a, that's a hard balance. So, so there it is. But thanks for asking. Yeah, I was in really good shape. Then I could do a full split um, back in the era of that photo. And probably for 10 years uh, after that, I, I could do a full split. And by the way, I wasn't very big in pumping iron. Uh, you, you do a little just to make sure the muscle groups are balanced out. But at the time, I just enjoyed wrestling. I, I enjoyed the, the purity of it. Like if you lost, you can say, Louis, why did you drop the ball? You know, there's no, there's no passing of blame. If you lost, you just got beat. And, and so I enjoyed the, the, the simplicity of that reality. And also it was, I don't know, you, if it's your strength against that of someone else, and they start overcoming your strength, you say, well, they're a human being and they're getting tired too. So, so the, the brain engagement there is also extraordinary. Can I hold up? Uh, and maybe they will, he will get tired before I will get tired, you know? And so it become, became, became a, a, a mental, physical um, excursion for me while I was studying astrophysics my whole life. I wrestled in high school and college and, and a little bit in graduate school. Neil, I've chatted with you so many times over the years, and I was racking my brain last night. What is one question I haven't asked Neil deGrasse Tyson? Here it is. What is your IQ? I've always wanted to know. That's a great question, actually, uh, because I have a, I have a, like a fully fleshed out answer for that. Um, <laughs> so thanks for asking. Uh, my answer is I have no fucking idea. Okay? Forgive the language there, but I... I don't have any idea. First, I went to public schools. They don't give IQ tests there. They give a bunch of tests, and maybe they convert it into an IQ score. But I know what IQ tests look like. I've never formally taken an IQ test. The first point. Second, I said to myself, suppose I did take one. What would that mean? What would that do for me? Suppose I took an IQ test, and it, the score was kind of low. What impact would that have on my ambitions? Would I say, I'll never be an astrophysicist. And all of a sudden, some exam written by someone else comes up with a single number that's going to define my life. Then I thought, suppose the IQ is really high. What effect would that have on me? Would I start walking taller and, and copping an attitude around people and um, who would question or challenge my thoughts or my ideas, saying, well, I've got a higher IQ than you, so there. So I didn't want any of that baggage in my life. I wanted my ambitions to be purely expressed just by my own interests and curiosities. 
because what else ever does someone use an IQ score for except to proscribe what it is anybody's going to expect you to accomplish in life? I didn't want any part of that, and I still don't. Understood. If you were to, I know you're a big analogy guy, but for us mouth breathers like me and Arthur, like there's like you and like Stephen Hawking and these great thinkers like Einstein. If you were to compare your intelligence as a whole to an Einstein, how would that how would that match up? No, it's 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 not about intelligence, and I don't mean to sound coy when I say I don't even know what intelligence means. I'm not just trying to bait you there. Uh, and so, for example, let's let's for the moment equate intelligence with just being smart. Let's just they're, they're kind of equivalent the way we use those two words in society. And let's go back to school. All right. Let's remember in every year in school, K through 12, there was like the smart kids. You knew who they were. Everyone knew who they were. All right. Usually they, they sat in the front of the class. All right, if, <laughs> or they always paid attention. Uh, they never fell asleep. They didn't pass notes in class. They paid attention um, to everything and all the instructions. They got their homework on time and they got high grades. And the system sees this and says to that person and to everyone else, that's a smart person. And then that person, as you move through school, gets the awards for, you know, highest performance or best student, all right? That it's everybody knows who those people are every year that this is. And it culminates in who gives the valedictorian address and who's salutatorian. These are the people with the highest GPA in school. Okay, now let's look at that population of people and, and just spotlight them in society, okay? So, that, so there's a spotlight on every single one of them right now, okay? Because we have put that spotlight on. Now, let us spotlight the people who are actually innovating this world. The people who are transforming how we live because of their curiosity and ingenuity. And you get people like Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, okay? T two very uh, leading examples here. By the way, they were both college dropouts, okay? How about... Um, Cinema. We're talking about creative people who are pushing limits and boundaries on everything that we think of as civilization. Look at James Cameron. He barely finished community college. Okay. How about um, uh, our guy Virgin Galactic? Um, um, Richard Branson. Richard Branson. Go, go look up his mini bio. It's like he was dyslexic. And his headmaster at the school in the UK said he'll either end up a millionaire or in prison. <laughs> because he was, he was innovative, but not in any way that shows up on an exam. And so he started selling records in high school, uh, commercially, all right? And that became Virgin Records, okay? Just so you know, and Virgin Records became Virgin America, Virgin, the, all those Virgin taglines are him, all right? So you look at this population, and I don't care who, who it is, just line them up. And none of them were valedictorians. Hardly any of them got straight A's. And sure enough, none of them are, teachers say, hey, they'll go far. And what are they basing you'll go far on? That, that analysis on what your grades are. That's what they're basing it on. So that tells me that whatever metrics we have for assessing someone's 
intelligence or how smart they are, fine. It applies to how well you do on exams. Fine. I, I don't have a problem if that's how you want to think about it. But if you also are going to tell yourself, look how smart this person is, they're going to go far in a world that has the complexities of interpersonal relationships and innovations and your drive and your perseverance. None of that is coded in how well you did on the geography exam. I think the, the, the tactics, the, the, no, the tools we use to assess your promise and performance as students in school, there's a disconnect between those metrics and whatever actual metrics matter. And I think the actual metrics that matter is, are you a lifelong learner? So it doesn't matter how much you learned in school, you spend much more of your life not in school than in school. So if you're a lifelong learner, you will learn far more than anything you were ever taught while you were in school. And right now we live in a culture, I'll call it the Alice Cooper culture, right? Was it Alice Cooper? Whose song? School's out for summer. School's out forever. I think that's Alice Cooper, right? That's an anthem to people who hate school. <laughs> that's, that's, and, and it's not just anybody's anthem. I would say most people are delighted when the school bell rings, when summer begins, at, at the day of graduation. I don't have to go back to school. And just think about what that state of mind is. It's, I resented learning so much I don't want to ever learn again for the rest of my life. What the hell do we do to you in school? What? School should be, um, this is so fun. I hate the end of school day. Oh my gosh. Because your only job was to learn. That's your only job. And what the school should really be doing, because not everyone learns at the same rate or at the same level, at least inculcate people with a deep sense of continuing curiosity so that your life can continue to evolve with the times with your imagination, with your, your pursuit of new ideas, especially in your job or your workplace or in your homes and, and the like. Ask me who's smart and who's not. I'm not, I don't even know what that means. I'm gonna give you something that happened to me, okay? Uh, I took the SATs, all right? I'm old enough when the SATs were called the Scholastic Aptitude Test, all right? What is aptitude? I'm gonna measure your capacity for ever knowing anything. That's what aptitude means. They would eventually change the name. They, they rebranded the A. So it became the Scholastic Assessment Test. It's a little better, okay? An assessment is this how here you are now. Doesn't mean you'll never be something later. I just got this, I got you now. All right. So my verbal scores were sort of okay, but nothing any teacher will say, hey, he'll go far, watch him. All right. Nobody ever said that to me about any of my grades, certainly not the verbal score, okay? This test is, per, the pur purveyors are the uh, Educational Testing Service, ETS. They are based in New Jersey, Princeton, New Jersey, actually. They have all these psychometricians and all these people who are, their lives are devoted to creating tests so that other people can judge whether or not you're gonna be successful, okay? Just think about what that even means as an enterprise. All right, so. 20 years later, okay, after I had published by then four books, had a running monthly column in the magazine, Natural, His Natural History magazine, I was working on yet another book, I get a letter in the mail from the Educational Testing Service. And it's addressed Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson. I said, hmm, are they tracking me? 
because you wouldn't know I had a doctorate when the last time I signed up to take the, the bloody test, right? So I open it up and says, Dear Dr. Tyson, we've been reading your writings and there's, there's one of your essays you've written that we'd like to excerpt and put in as an example of writing for the next version of the SATs that we are putting together. Will you give permission for this? And I, I said, what the fuck? What? Yeah, I'm flattered, yes. But these are the same people who I wrote a test that I took where, no, I didn't get perfect 800s on that. And other people jumped in and said, no, you're, the, well, they don't discourage you necessarily, but they don't encourage you. They don't say, hey, you should start writing. We think you have a knack for that. No, I just kept writing. I enjoyed writing. I enjoyed communicating. I enjoyed putting word to page. I enjoyed thinking about the rhythms of how words and ideas can flow. And I try to get inside the head of the person who's tracking my words to say, okay, I think I might be losing them here. Let me kick it up a notch. Here's a phrase. Here's a sentence length. Here's a, a, a little things like for every book I've ever written, the introduction, by the way, I hate introductions. If it's important, put it in the fricking book. Why are you gonna delay me for all this time when I wanna actually read the book? So, but books need introductions. So <laughs> I make sure that every introduction I've ever written fits on one page or at most spills over a little bit on the page after when you turn it so that if you start reading it and you don't like the introduction, no, oh, I can finish that. And then you just, this is all tactical writing. Thing. So anyhow, uh, that example with ETS for me was a particularly damning of an entire system that, so you asked me what the hell is my IQ and who's smart and who isn't. You should ask who's ambitious and who's not. Who's curious and who isn't? Uh, ask who, who is not, I guess the modern term for this is grit. Who can be knocked down? Who could be in last place and still work and end up winning the race? Those are different questions. The, the good answers to those questions, maybe we should call those people smart. Speaking of grit, I want to switch gears to the New York Knicks because I saw a great story about how one of your friends <laughs> gave you a pair of Clyde Frazier's shoes because he was a ball boy for the Knicks when you guys were kids. The Knicks are actually good again. How exciting is this? Yeah, you know, I, I, stopped, I stopped investing my energy in whether a team wins. If you like the sport, you just like watching it. And so if, when the Knicks, you had to feel that way for the because... I became an, I was a Knicks fan in middle school when they were winning. That's how old I am. And when they won the championship and that was, you know, the golden, they had, you know, Walt Frazier and Dave DeBusher and, and Bill Bradley. And so, yeah, I was imprinted in a good way, but I still like basketball. And uh, this idea, I talk about this with my wife often, you know, you get a set of players who uh, were born wherever in the country and someone in one city gathers them together and they start winning and then the city has pride. Well, they were born in Kentucky or <laughs> if I'm in New York. I mean, why do I have pride in people, in you know, five people, none of whom were born in my block? So it's an odd fact that we rally around this artificially assembled group of people simply because they were purchased. And now we have local pride for, what, for something that's fundamentally not local. I, I'm intrigued by that. And, but anyhow, yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad they're winning. And yeah, I had sneak, I had the same size foot uh, within a half a size of, of Walt Frazier when I was in high school. 
and and uh, he had signed his Puma contract, Clyde, the Clyde Frazier Puma. Was it once every two games or once every three games? He threw him away and had another pair. <laughs> so I said, I could totally get into this. And the quality of a Puma relative to the Converse All-Stars, uh, because I, I, I was wearing, everyone, everyone was wearing Converse All-Stars. So was the NBA, basically. Uh, but they didn't last me very long. I d- played a lot of basketball in the yard and school, you know, the schoolyard and the, and the uh, playground. And that they had a very rubbery bottom relative to the Puma. I mean, I analyzed this at the time. If you go to the bottom of a Converse All-Star, of course, they're still made, and just sort of press hard and sort of move your finger back and forth, the rubber will move with your finger, okay, the, the treads. And so that's an extraordinary grip on a, a cement or asphalt playground. So it is in the Converse All-Stars that I first dunked a basketball. Right? And I might have been just six feet at the time. I was in ninth grade, which was still middle school at the time. So that's when I, and then you got to be able to like get a good running start, hit the ground, elevate, and be able to palm the basketball. So I, my hands were large enough, and if you get a good sort of street ball, which is not leather but rubber, you get a good grip, and I was able to dunk. Point is, when I moved to the Puma, the Puma is a much more, it's a heavier shoe and much more heavier, heavier construction. It lasted three or four times longer than my Converse All-Stars, even the treads. And I said, well, how is that so? And I looked at the treads, they're not as rubbery, okay? So if you're not as rubbery, it means you're firmer. It means you're burning less rubber when you're running up and down the basketball court. I didn't quite hit the stop part as sharply in Pumas as I did in the Converse All-Stars. Just a little bit of rubber physics for you. <laughs> And then I thought to myself, if I get through my Converse All-Stars that quickly, how much rubber gets burned in a basketball game? I just thought that through. And uh, were we inhaling that rubber? Not as much rubber as you inhale at a NASCAR race, by the way. <laughs> I'm still trying but, to imagine you dunking a basketball. That's fucking awesome. <laughs> it was hard. Oh, my gosh. No. Plus, you have to do it because, you know, I, I could just barely hold the ball. So you can't forward dunk it because the ball might just leave your hand. So you have to sort of back dunk it. So your hand is always pushing towards the direction of the ball. And that way you can maintain control. But that was back then. And now I'm, you know, I'm heavier and I'm old man. So I haven't dunked in quite a while. Uh, (laughs) They should have an old man dunking contest. That would be fun. Who's the oldest person who can still dunk a basketball? They they should have that at the the all-star break. Yeah, it's kind of like when they do the, they should have an all-star game. They should put one fan in just for perspective, you know, see how, how good these guys actually are. So. Oh, right. Oh, right. Cause they're all just against each other and they look yeah. like, oh yeah, you're just a little better than that. What are you? And yeah. oh my gosh, no. There was just this viral moment, Neil, where Patrick Ewing, the Knicks great was just back at Madison square garden. Cause he's a coach of the Georgetown Hoyas and security didn't recognize him. Meanwhile, he's like, <gasps> So, and, and he went viral because he goes, I own this house. What the fuck pretty much is going on? And he ripped the Knicks. And it made me think you're essentially the icon of your industry. Have you ever had a situation where someone has not recognized you or there's been kind of mistaken identity for who Neil deGrasse Tyson is where you've been somewhere? Okay. So, wow. I didn't know that I missed that news cycle with Patrick Ewing. Plus, the dude's seven feet tall. How? Uh, what do you think he's a random person? <laughs> Put two and two together, people. <laughs> you know, even if he wasn't a former Nick, he might have played some basketball in his day. So, like, in so inquire about that one. All right. 
Um, but it's a reminder that, no, you're not always forever, right? And are you in the news locally? No, if he's back in Georgetown uh, where he played. Um, so I'd be, I think personally, I might've been a little more forgiving. And again, I'm an educator. And for me, if I see someone who doesn't know something, I, I, I try to rise to that challenge. And what I might do if I wanted to just mess with him, I, I'd say, yeah, do, do you follow basketball at all? You know, just have a just get them into a place where you can just have fun with the fact that they didn't recognize it. Um, with me, uh, I, my recognition was not an overnight thing as it is sometimes, oh, I was discovered on, you know, in a play and I got put in a movie. I was discovered at, you know, no, 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 no. It was, it's been slow and steady, okay? And, and you can quantify that. I can, and I did, I quantified it. So, so back in the 90s, my appearance on documentaries, PBS type documentaries and an occasional, you know, uh, evening news interview, I would get recognized by a stranger in the street once a week. And then that slowly became, slowly, twice a week, then five times a week, then a few times a day, then five times a day, 10 times a day. That's still manageable. It started hitting 20, 30 times a day. I, I, maybe I should start wearing sunglasses. Or, or a hat or something. So I started dressing to conceal it. Um, that tamped it down, but then it still kept rising up even beneath that. It reached a point where it would be, it would be thousands of times a day by total strangers if I did not. And now it's just full up celebrity mode, okay? So now the recognition comes, I'm waiting in line talking to someone, someone turns around and says, I know that voice. And so now I can't, I can't even talk, all right? I can't, I can't, I can't. And it's odd because I, you, know, you don't hear your own voice, right? I don't know what, I'm just me, right? I'm not thinking my voice is something, you know, turn around, turn aroundable, recognizable. I don't think that way. I, I know maybe five people in the world for whom that's true, one would be, of course, Morgan Freeman, right, maybe, uh, Donald Trump. There are like five voices we would turn around and recognize. Uh, and so I'm, it's, it's a little invasive, but nonetheless flattering that I would be recognized on the spot because of my voice. So a point where I'm not recognized, um, I don't care. I mean, it's not, a, it's, it's not a thing. It's not, you should recognize me. Don't you know who I am? That's never been a thought. It's never a thought. So I, so I, that was my, I gave a whole long explanation there and I don't even have an answer for your question. Just hearing uh, you talk. I failed your question. I, no, I, I don't have that sense of the world. I view everyone who doesn't know something as an occasion and an opportunity to be an educator for them. Maybe you have an answer for this one, Neil. I know you have like 22 degrees in 40 professions, but you're not a cop, are you? No. Okay. No, that's no. not among my professions. Nor have I ever had police in the family. You know, some people, the extended family, oh, my Uncle Louie was a cop and aunt, you know, that, no, there's no, the police are not a thing. Interesting. Because I, I want to talk a little bit about psychedelics because I've dabbled a few times in my youth in psilocybin and each time I experience the sense of like ego dissolution where I'm not in the universe, but kind of of the universe. Do you think that the psychedelic experience is useful in an academic sense for what you do, or is it just kind of an armchair 
cosmologists? Yeah, that's that's thank, that's an interesting question. Thanks for asking it. I've thought long and hard about this, and the human brain, when functioning perfectly, as evolution has endowed us, the human brain barely gets it right. It's in spite of itself that we don't lead to our own demise before we're 12, okay? The human brain misjudges phenomenon, is rife with bias, is, this is just what it is to be human. I'm not talking one person versus another. I'm talking about the human brain has severe disruptions in our interpretation of an objective reality. Look at what we've even done. We, there are books you can buy called Optical Illusions. You can buy whole books on optical illusions and you open up the book and there's like a line with three things and you don't know which line is longer than the other, the simplest of line drawings. And you're saying, I don't know, is it in the page? Is it out of the page? And I'm thinking to myself, if we can collect simple line drawings that confound our human brain's ability to understand what is objectively true, to then say, let's add some chemicals in. <laughs> let's, let's add some, to connect you deeper to nature. We're barely connected to nature as it is. My gosh. So no, I am not saying, I, I'm not on the line saying, let me get some psychedelics so that I am more plugged in to the operations of nature. I'm not that person. So this feeling is just an illusion in itself. I mean, because it is, a, it's almost undeniable at, you know, in my experience. So that's just kind of a, you know. What you'd have to do is, okay, so the way to do this is you're trying to solve a problem in life, okay? Often going to sleep and waking up the next morning gets you closer to it. Just the simple act of dreaming and what your brain does naturally. All right. So now you're trying to solve a problem and you say, I need help. Let me take these three tabs of LSD, let me get high, let me get drunk, and then I'll know the answer tomorrow. <laughs> is this really, okay? It's really, is that, if, because if that were the case, every scientist, I think we'd have, you know, we'd have sugar cubes tapped with LSD. We'd be totally into it. it but I, I just don't see that happening. So you can believe you're connected to reality. There's an episode of Family Guy where they all, they, they, the whole family wants to re, relive or, or live, experience the 1960s, right? So Peter Griffin becomes a hippie and they, and then they, they play in a band for the school and they're all completely high. And so you see them up on stage and they're all playing this beautiful hippie piece music. And then you look from the point of view of the audience and it's like, what the fuck? <laughs> nothing is in tune, nothing is it. So, yeah, if you need to feel like you're deep, sure. But that doesn't mean you're actually deep. And, and by the way, there's this whole other, there's a word for it, I forgot, where you sustain very low levels of, of psychedelic drugs just so that it sort of puts you in a, you still can function, but your, your path through life is enriched in some imaginative way. Microdosing. Oh, no, thank you, thank you. Microdosing. Micro has an official meaning in physics. It's not just small. It's like one millionth of a gram is a microgram. Uh, so 
uh, I, it's probably not one millionth of a gram, but it's like nanobots. Nano is one billionth of a meter, a nanometer. And however is the size of your thing is probably not a billionth of anything. <laughs> so there's certain words there. So, so microdosing, maybe that would just, you know, make you have more fun in life. I, I don't know. But for me, I've invested a lot of my time and energy trying to become better connected to reality. And if you read Isaac Newton's writings, um, in one of his books published 1704 called Optics, one of his few books published in English, by the way, back then uh, Latin was how you communicated with other scholars. Um, this is where he you know, figures out the colors of the rainbow, how they're made, that all those colors make white light. At the end, he has a whole chapter just on called queries, queries. This is why I like that word because Newton used that word for cosmic queries. He has queries and these queries are just stuff spilling off his lunch plate, okay? And he said, I wonder if the stars of the night sky are kind of just like the sun, but the sun is just much, much closer than they are. Yeah, this is a question he was posing about the universe. He didn't say, gee, I wonder if the moon is made of cheese. No, his questions were, oh my gosh. Whole PhD theses could be derived from the simple questions he was asking because of the depth of his curiosity and how plugged in he was. Are you gonna go back to him and say, no, you can achieve a higher plane of existence, take these drugs? Uh, I don't, I'm not, I'm thinking that would not be productive for him and his career as a scientist. I never thought I'd say this, Neil, but I disagree with you. Oh, I love being disagreed with. <laughs> I love it. I think he just wants to get high, Neil. I think, looking, <laughs> I, think I think Matt's just looking to go for a reason to turn. I'm not saying whole, don't get high. Was. I'm saying don't get high with the expectation that that reality becomes clearer to you. That's speaking, all. Of, speaking of curiosity, Neil, I saw a great picture on your Instagram. You're holding the Jeopardy flag, and you've obviously been a question on Jeopardy many times. Many times, yeah, yeah, yeah. But if they came to you and said, Neil, we want you to take over as full-time hosts of Jeopardy. What would that answer look like? Well, so first it's like real coin they're talking about there, right? Uh, it's primarily not because the pay rate is high, although it would be, right? Because it's a primetime game show, but it's that the show is every day, all right? It, it's every day. So, so whatever it is, if you're doing it once, you multiply that by, they do 200 shows a year. I think Alex, was pulling out 10, 12, 15 million a year doing that job. Of course, he was veteran at it, and so anyone knew would be less, but still, it's real money. I, I, I was honored to have put on the, been put on the list of those they were looking for. In fact, in Vegas, I was in the top, I might have even been in the top 10. There were some good names in there too. All right, LeVar Burton, you know, people who you respect for their intellect and their personality but they're not too weird, right? And so I thought it was a very intelligently constructed list. And high on that list was, of course, Ken Jennings. And lately, that's, I think, who, who, who's been hosting. No, my answer would be no, um, I think. My answer would be no, because I'm, I have a philosophical and practical reason. The practical reason, I have a day job, okay? I'm, I, I, I didn't live my life saying, gee, one day I wanna be Jeopardy host. There might be other people climbing over each other to do that, and they'll do it well. And I don't like doing jobs that other people can do. I'd rather do what no one else can do. 
or what no one else can do well. That way, my contributions to the world are unique rather than just doing it slightly better or not even as good as someone else that you could have put in that slot. All right. So that's <clears throat> and my philosophical point is I value insight and problem solving more than I value knowledge. So uh, Einstein is quoted, this might be one of the quotes that's accurate attributed to him, that where it's uh, never memorize what you can look up in a book. And the modern version of that is never, never memorize what you can just uh, uh, Google. And so I'm, I'm a fan of that outlook, our relationship to knowledge. And so to celebrate a game, which I love, you know, there's one of the only intelligent things going on on, 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 on television is Jeopardy for, for decades. In spite of my, my fanning over that show, uh, I'd rather promote thinking rather than memorization if I'm going to devote an important part of who and what I am to this world. So no, my answer would be no. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe no. Likely no. Okay. Uh, Neil, there's no real seamless way to transition into this, but the Fermi paradox, obviously lack of evidence for extraterrestrial civilizations and high estimates for their probability. What do you make of this? And do you think that we'll find an answer in the future? Yeah, uh, I don't think, I think most people don't fully understand the Fermi paradox. So if you give me a second to lay it out for you, just so we're on the same page, let's say we figured out how to travel to planets on a nearby star. So that would be Alpha, Alpha Centauri system, four light years away. And let's say we don't even travel the speed of light. Let's say we travel one-tenth the speed of light, all right? So that would take 40 years to get there. All right, you can live that long, 40 years. Now you get there and you have fundamental supplies. Well, even if you could travel the speed of light, it doesn't change the answer to this. You then pitch tent and you reproduce, you have others and others, and then you make factories and you make more rockets. And now you get to go to two planets and then they uh, create civilization and then they go to two planets each. So you go from one to two to four to eight and this doubles. So if it takes 40 years to double, you can say to yourself, how long would it take to colonize, there's a bad word today, to, to explore every inhabitable planet in the galaxy as you planet hop? The galaxy is 100,000 light years across. That's not very large if you just went four light years. How many more? Okay, it's a few thousand years, a few million years. The universe has been here for 10, 14 billion years. So a simple exploratory plan, if you have the ability to do it, would populate every planet in the galaxy in far less time than the universe has been around. So Enrico Fermi did that math. Back of the envelope, as we used to say, calculation. Don't need a computer for that. And you say, my gosh, if any alien had this ability, they should already be here. So where are they? That's the Fermi paradox. Think they're just okay. disinterested? And so it's not just if they're out there, they should be here. We did the math on this. Okay. So what's stopping them? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Maybe it's really hard to travel to the stars. All right. Uh, they're constrained by the same laws of physics we are. 
And how do we know that? Because the laws of physics we discover on Earth, we see manifested across the universe. The electromagnetic energy, the quantum physics, the gravitation. These are fundamental forces that are driving the universe, and we see them operating on other stars and other galaxies to the edge of the universe since the beginning of time. There's a cottage industry of my field whose job it is, they've given themselves, to test whether the laws of physics on Earth are precisely the same as manifested by the laws of physics in the early universe. Because as you look out in space, you're looking back in time. So you get to see, are the laws of physics the same everywhere? And are the laws of physics the same every when? Everywhere and every when? And the answer is yes. And so maybe the barriers are huge. That's one. Another one is maybe they did crack the barrier, but it's my favorite accounting of it. But whatever is the urge to want to colonize another planet has writ within it its own self-destruction. Sure, it's fine at the beginning. Oh, you go there and I'll go here. We each have a planet. Oh, then we start doing this again. Whatever is that genetic drive to want to do this, all of a sudden you encounter each other again for a planet that you both value. And I want to know you want it. Then you fight over it. And the entire colonization um, movement ends up bringing itself to a halt, imploding because the urge to colonize is counter indicated in the need to call is in in the success of whether you accomplish this and we've kind of seen that okay if europe as an entity says we like going to other places we've never been to before and declaring ourselves their overlords okay spain thought that england thought that france thought that portugal thought that uh, the netherlands they all thought that and guess what happened they started fighting each other over the same lands, all right? And that imploded. The colonies rose up, okay? And so, so maybe the model that has already played out on this earth has already played out in the Fermi paradox. And uh, the aliens have destroyed themselves. I wanna ask you about the Elon Musk phenomenon, the SpaceX phenomenon, and what your thoughts are about what Elon Musk has brought to this new space age. Oh, this should have happened decades ago. He should have been a Johnny come lately to something that we prioritized as a country, but uh, we were very late. We kept it sort of as a, as a government program. NASA is a government program. That's why it's called the space program. All right. Uh, how do you turn a space program into a space industry? You need to allow and encourage private enterprise to, to participate and uh, using their own monies, their own initiatives, their own. And yeah, the early ones out of the box, it's going to be dangerous. There'll be people who will die. People have died. All right. And Blue Origin, I think they had um, uh, a tragedy in some of their experimental craft. That's not fundamentally different, not to, not to make light of that, but you would expect that given how dangerous it is, given how new it is. And uh, by the way, we had astronauts who died. Okay, Apollo 1 astronauts, three of them, and they didn't even die in space. Okay, so yes, tragedies happen when you're doing what no one has done before. And it's not entirely unlike the early days of aviation. 
Is there a role somewhere that lists the people who died trying to fly? I, I'm not, if there is, I haven't seen one, but there were many. And back then, once they finally got the thing, then the only people who died were rich people because the rich people said, I want to fly. And then they get on the, you know, the new contra contrapted aeroplane, AER, and then the plane crashes and, okay, we lost another one. The things got safer, they got better, they got more efficient, they ended up traveling faster. And so aviation is a completely safe, um, safer than any other way you're going to get from A to B. So I think that is in the future of space. Uh, tourism will surely drive that. And so, yeah, it's about time. And even if he has dreams that I think are a little over the edge, I'm not going to stop him because first he might succeed even against my skepticisms, he might succeed. But more importantly, to get there, you have to innovate in ways that will totally spin off and have interesting transportation technologies that will, with no doubt, if history is any cue, continue to transform how we live and how we move. So assembly Corps by 2027, they say the world's for, first space hotel will be under construction. I saw that's a little ambitious. I, <laughs> I keep that date to, to strive for it, but space hotel, um, uh, you know, all right. Uh, I mean, how big is the hotel? You know, is it that you got 10 beds? Cause it's really just a spaceship. No, it says it's got restaurants, earth viewing lounges, concert venues, gyms, bars. So yeah, in six years, Vegas, six in years. the Mars Hilton. Yeah, really? Yeah, yeah. Thank you, the Mars Hilton. <laughs> I also love when you see when they landed on Mars and you see all the NASA people going nuts. I wonder how pre-rehearsed that all is. They obviously oh. know it's going to land. No, you don't. No, no, no. Of course it will land. The question is whether it lands safely. <laughs> they're, they're cheering, not the fact that it landed. Gravity is going to make the damn thing land. All right. It's when you get a signal back confirming that it has landed without error. That is what they are cheering. Oh my gosh. No, no, of course they're, they're headed for Mars. Be why? Because the track record is not good for Mars. All right. It might be a fourth of all missions to Mars have failed. And so these are people who devoted their lives to designing the, the spacecraft and the, the, those are the engineers and the rover and the, and the, and the experiments on the rover. The, the invested emotion in this thing working is off the charts. So no, none of it's rehearsed, none of it. They would be doing that even if the cameras were not rolling. Neil deGrasse Tyson, you were amazing. Go get his most recent book, Cosmic Queries. It's going to be mind-blowing. Like oh, by the way, your, your queries to me were of a deep, more philosophical nature, and that's what pervades this book. It's not just, oh, how hot is the sun? It's, what does it mean that we are alive at this time in the universe? How did it all begin? How will it all end? And one thing I just want to leave you with is some of those questions, because it's question-driven, not answer driven. So some of those questions have nice tidy answers that are well understood. Others are kind of, this is the best answer we have. We've got top people working on it, we're not sure. Other questions, we don't even know if they're the right questions. When you're on the frontier, there's no such insights. In the back of the book, oh, did I ask that right? Did I, no, 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 no. No one has ever asked that question before. Therefore, is it even correct? Occur, uh, is, is, it a, is, is it a legitimate question to ask? And you might say, well, all questions are good. Mm, no, for example, go visit Santa Claus, okay? And there he is on the North Pole, 
and you say, Santa, uh, could you please point north for me? I want to go north from here. And every direction Santa points is due south. In fact, there's not even east or west on the North Pole. There is only south. So the very question, which way is north, has no meaning on the North Pole. Even though the sentence has nouns and verbs in all the right places and has a question mark and it's a legitimate English sentence, scientifically it has no meaning. Is there one question, Neil, that you want answered before you die? The dream question that is yeah, in your mind? Yeah. yeah, it's if humans are the only, using an earlier word to bring this to closure, if we're the only smart species there ever was in the tree of life, and let's define smart as we have poetry and art and philosophy and science and engineering and, and, and we can build stuff, okay? No other animal can do all of those things, all right? So therefore, we're the first smart species ever to exist on Earth. I lose sleep over the question, if we are the first species to ever have what anyone would call smarts, are we smart enough to even know what questions to ask? Are we smart enough to answer the questions we have posed? Or does a complete understanding of the universe in which we are immersed require some other species that is unattainably smart and vastly more insightful than we are? If you walk up to a chimpanzee and say, uh, I'm gonna get on a plane, fly to DC, uh, get a Starbucks latte, and I'll meet you for 10 o'clock uh, in the boardroom. It's like, okay, what is an airplane? What is a latte? What is other? The, the, the chimp will have no, what is 10 o'clock? Will have no concept ever of most words in that sentence, no matter how hard the chimp tried. Imagine a highly smarter species than us uttering a sentence where there is no chance that a parsing of the meaning of that sentence will be had given the limitations of the human brain. So I say to you, I lay awake at night wondering, are we just touching the side of the elephant and we'll never know that there's an elephant standing in the room? Or is just enough smarts good enough to figure it all out? And if you want to delay the chances of figuring it out, just take more LSD. <laughs> Neil, thanks for an amazing hour, man. That was awesome. Excellent, guys. Okay, thanks for your interest. And thanks for coming back all these many times. Absolutely. You're welcome back anytime. We, we're just the best, Neil. It's always a pleasure. All right, folks, hopefully your minds were blown as much as ours were while talking to Neil deGrasse Tyson. I got to say, Matt, I've gotten the pleasure of interviewing him so many times over the years. No matter how many times I talk to Neil, it feels like it's the first time. He's just that charismatic, that brilliant, always on. And you feel like you've walked away from a college AP science class because he has so many facts so many great stories, so many insights. I guess that's why Neil deGrasse Tyson is Neil deGrasse Tyson. Yeah, I mean, he has his way about making things so accessible. Like, you know he's so much smarter than you, but he always meets you at your level. He's the king of analogies. He's always, you know, coming up with these euphemisms and whatnot about how the universe works. And, you know, like I said, he's, he's a guy who can anchor himself 
in the world while also thinking far beyond it. And I think that's why there are so few pop scientists like him. Hopefully he comes on again because I, we could have gone for four more hours. Yeah, that's the thing. You and I got off and we were just like, oh my God, we have like 55 more questions we want to ask. So Neil, we told you on the show, we're telling you now, you are welcome back anytime, man. Thank you just for a fabulous interview. And you definitely deserved your own episode. Thanks for giving us all the A-plus stuff. And don't forget to take psychedelics, Neil. Come on. (laughs) And don't forget, Matt disagreed with you on the psychedelics. Let's not forget that great moment. Of Of all the great stuff Neil dropped, his disagreement with you on whether psychedelics enhance brain activity is one of my favorite moments so far in endless hustle history. <laughs> you know, it's just different ideologies. He likes it. Hey, you took it well. Agree to disagree, you know? I mean. <laughs> All right, guys. We're back on Thursday with a brand new episode. Matt, let's jump into plugs and let the people go about their day. All right. Follow us on Twitter, Endless Hustle on Twitter, at Endless Double Underscore Hustle. You can follow us on Instagram, at Endless Hustle Pod. Follow Bro Bible, at Bro Bible on Instagram and Twitter, because we're posting the juiciest clips there. You can follow our YouTube as well. Follow my personal account, Mr. Cohan, at Mr. Cohan, K-E-O-H-A-N. And you can also, more importantly, follow my friend Arthur's accounts. I'm at Arthur Cade on Twitter, at It's Me Arthur Cade on Instagram. Thanks as always for listening, Endless Hustlers. We'll see you back with a brand new episode on Thursday. And stay tuned because some of the upcoming guests we have, I mentioned this last episode, I'm saying it again. I'm plugging, plugging, plugging. We got some absolute bombs coming your way. So get ready. See you Thursday. Peace.